the mission and miracles of Elisha by Arthur W. Pink 1886-1952 Narrated from his Studies in the Scriptures a monthly magazine Chapter 1 Introduction That which occupies the central and dominant place in what the Spirit has been pleased to record of the life of Elisha is the miracles performed by and connected with him. Far more miracles were wrought by him or were granted in answer to his prayers than by any other of the Old Testament prophets. In fact, the narrative of his history consists of little else than a record of supernatural acts and events. Nor need this at all surprise us, though it is strange that so few seem to grasp the implication and signification of the same. The character of Elijah's mission and ministry was in thorough keeping with Israel's condition at that time. The very fact that these miracles were needed by them indicated the state into which they had fallen. Idolatry had held sway for so long that the true and living God was no longer known by the nation. Here and there were individuals who believed in and owned the Lord. But the masses were worshippers of idols. Therefore, by means of drastic interpositions, by awe-inspiring displays of His power, by supernatural manifestations of His justice and mercy alike, God forced even the skeptical to recognize His existence and subscribe to His supremacy. In our introductory chapter on the life of Elijah, we pointed out what is implied and denoted by the prophetic office and mission. In this one, it is fitting that we should make a few remarks upon the reason for and meaning of miracles. The two partake of much the same nature, for prophecy is really an oral miracle, as miracles are virtually prophecies, foretellings of God in action. As God only sends forth one of his prophets in a time of marked declension and departure of his people from himself, so miracles are quite unnecessary while the sufficiency of his word was practically recognized. The one as much as the other lies entirely outside the ordinary line or course of things, neither occurring during what we may term normal times. Which of the patriarchs, the priests, or the kings performed any miracles? How many were wrought during the lengthy reign of Saul, David, or Solomon? Why, then, were so many wonders done during the ministry of Elijah, and still more so during that of Elisha. The mission and ministry of Elisha was the same in character as that which 
God did in Egypt by the hand of Moses. There Jehovah was unknown, entirely so by the Egyptians, largely so by the Israelites. The favored descendants of Abraham had sunk as low as the heathen in whose midst they dwelt, and God, by so many remarkable signs and unmistakable interventions, brought them back to that knowledge of himself which they had lost. Unless the Hebrews in Egypt had been thoroughly convinced by those displays of divine power that Moses was a prophet sent from God, they had never submitted to him as their leader. How reluctantly they owned his authority on various occasions. So also in the conquest of Canaan, God wrought four miracles in favor of his people, one in the water of Jordan, one in the earth in throwing down the walls of Jericho, one in the air in destroying their enemies by hail, and one in the heavens by slowing the course of the sun and the moon. Thereby the nations of Canaan were furnished with clear proof of Jehovah's supremacy, that the God of Israel possessed universal dominion, that he was no local deity but the Most High reigning over all nature. But it may be asked, how do the miracles wrought by Christ square with what has been said here? Surely they should present no difficulty. Pause and ask the question, why did he work miracles? Did not his teaching make clearly evident his divine mission? The very officers sent to arrest him, having to acknowledge, never man spake as this man. Did not the spotless holiness of his life make manifest the heavenliness of his person? Even Pilate being forced to testify, I find no fault in him. Did not his conduct on the cross demonstrate that he was no impostor? The centurion and his fellows owning, truly, this was the Son of God. Matthew 27, verse 54. Ah, but men must be left without the shadow of an excuse for their unbelief. The whole world shall have it unmistakably shown before their eyes that Jesus of Nazareth was none other than a God manifest in flesh. The Gentiles were sunk in idolatry. Judaism was reduced to a lifeless formality and had made void the word of God by their traditions. And therefore did Christ reveal the wisdom and power of God as none other before or since by a series of miracles which warranted him saying, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Thus it will be seen that there is another characteristic which links closely together prophecy and miracles. The character of the times in which they occur, supplying the key both to their implication and their signification. Both of them may be termed abnormalities. 
for neither of them are given in the ordinary course of events. While conditions are relatively decent, God acts according to the ordinary working of the laws of creation and the operations of his providence. But when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord lifts up a more apparent and noticeable standard against him, coming out, as it were, more into the open and obliging men to take cognizance of him. But there is this difference. The one intimates there is a state of grievous departure from God on the part of his people. The other indicates that the knowledge of the true and living God has publicly disappeared, that he is no longer believed in by the masses. Drastic diseases call for drastic remedies. The missions of Elijah and Elisha formed two parts of one whole, the one supplementing the other, though there was a striking contrast between them. Therein we have an illustration of the spiritual signification of the number two. Whereas one denotes there is no other, two affirms there is another and therefore a difference. That difference may be for good or for evil, and therefore this number bears a twofold meaning according to its associations. The second that comes in may be for opposition or for support. The two, though different in character, may be one in testimony and friendship. The testimony of two men is true, John 8, 17, and compare Numbers 35, 30. Thus, two is also the number of witness. And the greater the contrast between the two witnesses, the more valuable their testimony when they agree therein. Hence it is that all through the scriptures we find two persons linked together to present a contrast, as in such cases as Cain and Abel, Abraham and Lot, Ishmael and Isaac, Jacob and Esau, or two bearing witness to the truth, as Enoch and Noah, Moses and Aaron, Caleb and Joshua, Naomi and Ruth, Ezra and Nehemiah, these sending forth of the apostles by twos, Mark 6, verse 7, and compare Revelation 11, 3. This linking together of two men in their testimony for God contains valuable instruction for us. It hints broadly at the twofoldness of truth. There is perfect harmony and unity between the two great divisions of Holy Writ, yet the differences between the Old and New Testaments are apparent to every thoughtful reader of them. It warns against the danger of lopsidedness, intimating the importance of seeking to preserve the balance. The chief instruments employed by God in the great reformation of the 16th century 
were Luther and Calvin. They took part in a common task and movement, yet how great was the difference between the two men and the respective parts they were called upon to play. Thus with Elijah and Elisha, there are manifest parallels between them, as in the likeness of their names, yet there are marked contrasts both in their missions and their miracles. It is in the observing of their respective similarities and dissimilarities that we are enabled to ascertain the special teaching which they are designed to convey to us. At first glance it may appear that there is a much closer resemblance than antitheses between the two men. Both of them were prophets. Both of them dwelt in Samaria. And they were confronted with much the same situation. The falling of Elijah's mantle upon Elisha seems to indicate that the latter was the successor of the former called upon to continue his mission. The first miracle performed by Elisha was identical with the last one wrought by his master, the smiting of the waters of the Jordan with the mantle, so that they parted asunder for him. Second Kings 2, 8 and 14 At the beginning of his ministry, Elijah had said unto Ahab, King of Israel, as the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand, 1 Kings 17, 1. And when Elisha came into the presence of Ahab's son, he also declared, as the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, 2 Kings 3, 14. As Elijah was entertained by the widow of Zarephath, and rewarded her by restoring her son to life, 1 Kings 17:22. So Elisha was entertained by a woman at Shunem, 2 Kings 4:8-10, and repaid her by restoring her son to life, 4:35-37. Striking. As are the points of agreement between the two prophets, yet the contrasts in their careers and works are just as vivid and certainly more numerous. The one appeared suddenly and dramatically upon the stage of public action without a word being told us of from whence he sprang or how he had previously been engaged. But of the other... The name of his father is recorded and an account of his occupation at the time he received his call into God's service. The first miracle of Elijah was that for the space of three and a half years there should be neither dew nor rain according to his word. Whereas the first public act of Elijah was to heal the springs of water. 2 Kings 2, 21 and 22, and to produce an abundance of water, 3, 20. One of the most noticeable features of Elijah's life was his loneliness. 
dwelling apart from the apostate masses of the people. But Elisha seems to have spent most of his life in the company of the prophets, presiding over their schools. The different manner in which their earthly careers terminated is even more marked. The one being taken to heaven in a chariot of fire, and the other falling sick in old age and dying a natural death. The principal contrast between the two prophets appears in the character of the miracles wrought by and connected with them. The majority of those performed by Elijah were associated with death and destruction, whereas by far the greater of those attributed to Elisha were works of healing and restoration. If the former was the prophet of judgment, the latter was the prophet of grace. If the course of one was fittingly closed by a whirlwind removing him from this scene, a peaceful dove would be the more appropriate emblem of the other. Elisha's ministry consisted largely of divine interpositions in a way of mercy, interventions of sovereign goodness rather than judicial dealings. He commenced his mission by a miracle of blessing, healing the death-dealing springs of water. What immediately followed was the establishing of his authority the symbol of his extraordinary office. The work of Elijah was chiefly a protest against evil, while the work of Elisha was an almost continuous testimony to the readiness of God to relieve the distressed and respond to the call of need wherever that call came from a contrite and believing heart. Unto many it may seem really astonishing that a ministry like that of Elisha should immediately follow after Elijah's, for in view of the desperate defiance he encountered, we would naturally suppose the end had been reached, that the patience of God was at last exhausted. But if we take into account what has been before us here on the signification of miracles, we shall be the less surprised. As we have pointed out, a state of general infidelity and idolatry forms their background, and thus the reason for and purpose of them breaking through the darkness and making himself manifest to a people who are gods but know him not. Now, since God is light, 1 John 1.5, that is, the ineffably Holy One, it necessarily follows that when revealing Himself, He will do so as the hater and punisher of sin. But it is equally true that God is love, 1 John 4.8, that is, the infinitely benevolent one, and consequently, when appearing more evidently before the eyes of his creatures, it is in wondrous works of kindness and benignity. Thus we have the two sides of the divine character revealed 
in the respective ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Deeds of vengeance and deeds of mercy. While their two missions may certainly be considered separately, yet Elisha's ministry should be regarded primarily as the complement of Elijah's. The two, though dissimilar, making one complete whole and only subordinately a thing apart. On the one hand, Elijah's mission was mainly of a public character. On the other, Elisha's was more in private. The former had to do principally with the masses and those who had led them astray, and therefore his miracles consisted chiefly of judgments expressive of God's wrath upon idolatry. The latter was engaged mostly with the Lord's prophets and people, and consequently his acts were mainly those of blessing, manifestations of the divine mercy. The comforting and assuring lesson in this for Christians today is that even in a season of apostasy and universal wickedness, when his rod is laid heavily upon the nations, the Lord will neither forget nor forsake his own, but will appear unto them as the God of all grace. Things may become yet worse than they now are. Even so, the Lord will prove himself to be a very present help to his people. Coming now to this subordinate viewpoint and considering Elisha's career as the sequel to Elijah's, may we not find in it a message of hope in this dark, dark hour? Those with any measure of spiritual discernment cannot fail to perceive the tragic resemblance there is between the time in which Elijah's lot was cast and our own sad day. The awful apostasy of Christendom, the appalling multiplication of false prophets, the various forms of idolatry now so prevalent in our midst, and the solemn judgments from heaven which have been and are being visited upon us, and the blatant refusal of the multitudes to pay any heed to them by mending their ways, all furnish an analogy which is too plain to be missed. There is therefore a real temptation to conclude that the end of all things is at hand. Some say an end of the age, others the end of the world. Many thought the same when Napoleon was desolating Europe and again in 1914 to 1918, but they were wrong. And it is quite likely that they will think the same today and will have their conclusions falsified. There is at least a warning for us here. Elijah was followed by Elisha. Who can tell what mercy God may yet show to the world? We must be on our guard against missing the consolation which this portion of Scripture may contain for us. The darkest night is followed by the morning's light. 
even though the present order of civilization be doomed to destruction, we know not what favors from God await this earth and generations to come. Of necessity, there will be a time when this world and all its works will be burned up, and that event may be very near. On the other hand, that event may be thousands of years away, and if such be the case, then black as is the present outlook, and blacker as it may yet become, yet the clouds of divine judgment will again disperse, and the Son of Righteousness arise once more with healing in His wings. More than once have the times of Elijah been substantially duplicated, even during this Christian era. Yet each time they were followed by an Elisha of mercy. Thus it may be again, yea, will be, unless God is now at the point of ringing down the curtain upon human history, very little indeed seems to have been written upon the life of Elisha, yet this is not difficult to account for, though there is almost twice as much recorded about him than his predecessor. His history is not given in one connecting piece or consecutive narrative, but rather is disjointed, the current of his life being crossed again and again by references to others. The scattered allusions to the prophet's career do not lend themselves so readily to biographical treatment as do the lives of Abraham, Jacob, or David. Why is this? For there is nothing meaningless in Scripture, perfect wisdom directing the Holy Spirit in every detail. May it not be that we have a hint here of the method which will be followed by the Lord in that era, which will possibly succeed the period of Christendom's history foreshadowed by Elijah's life? May not the broken and disconnected account of Elisha's deeds presage the form God's dealings will take in a future generation, that instead of being a regular stream, they will be occasional showers of blessing at intervals. Chapter 2 His Call in our introductory chapter, we sought to point out the close connection there is between the missions and ministries of Elijah and Elisha. Let us now consider the personal relation that existed between the two prophets themselves. This is something more than a point of interest. It throws light upon the character and career of the latter and it enables us to discern the deeper spiritual meaning which is to be found in this portion of the Word. There was a twofold relation between them, one official and the other more intimate. The former is seen in 1 Kings 19, verse 16, where we learn that Elijah was commanded to anoint Elisha to be prophet and it is worthy of note 
that while it is generally believed all the prophets were officially anointed, but Elisha's case is the only one expressly recorded in Scripture. Next we learn that immediately following his call, Elisha went after Elijah and ministered unto him. 1 Kings 19.21 So the relation between them was that of master and servant, confirmed by the statement that he poured water on the hands of Elijah. 2 Kings 3 verse 11 But there was more than an official union between these two men. The ties of affection bound them together. There is reason to believe that Elisha had accompanied Elijah during the last ten years of his earthly life. And during the closing scenes we are shown how closely they were knit together and how strong was the love of the younger man to his master. During their lengthy journey from Gilgal to Jordan, Elijah said to his companion again and again, Tarry ye here, I pray thee. But nothing could deter Elisha from spending the final hours in the immediate presence of the one who had won his heart or make him willing to break their communion. So they still went on and talked. Second Kings 2.11 Observe how the Spirit has emphasized this. First they went down to Bethel. Verse 2 But later they too went on. Verse 6 They too stood by Jordan. Verse 7 They too went on dry ground. Verse 8 Refusing to be separated. And when they must be, Elisha cried, My father, my father, a term of endearment and in token of his deep grief, took hold of his own clothes and rent them in two pieces. As the invariable rule of Scripture, it is the first mention which supplies the key to all that follows. Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. 1 Kings 19, verse 16. Those words signify something more than that he was to be his successor. Elisha was to take Elijah's place and act as his accredited representative. This is confirmed by the fact that when he found Elisha, Elijah cast his mantle upon him, verse 19, which signifies the closest possible identification. It is very remarkable to find that when Joash the king of Israel visited the dying Elisha, he uttered the selfsame words over him as the prophet had used when Elijah was departing from this world. Elisha cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. The real defense of Israel. Chapter 2, verse 12. And Joash said, O my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and the horsemen thereof. Second Kings 13, verse 14. That not only marked the identification of Elisha with Elijah, 
but the identification was actually owned by the king himself. Another detail which serves to manifest the relation between the two prophets is found in the striking reply made by Elisha unto the question of his master, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken from thee. Namely, I pray thee, let a double portion of thy spirit be upon me. 2 Kings 2 verse 9 That his request was granted appears clear from the sequel. If thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall be so unto thee. And verse 12 assures us, And Elisha saw. Moreover, when the young prophet saw him smite the waters of the Jordan with his master's mantle so that they parted hither and thither, they exclaimed, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. Verse 15. The double portion was that which pertained to the firstborn or oldest son and heir. But he shall acknowledge the son of the hated for the firstborn by giving him a double portion of all that he hath, for he is the beginning of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. Deuteronomy 21.17 And compare First Chronicles 5.1 Elisha, then, was far more than the historical successor of Elijah. He was appointed and anointed to be his representative. We might almost say his ambassador. He was the man who had been called by God to take Elijah's place before Israel. Though Elijah had left this scene and gone on high, yet his ministry was not to cease. True, he was no longer here in person, yet he would be so in spirit. Elisha was to be in his room, 1 Kings 19.16, for the starting point of his mission was the ascension of his master. Now, what we may ask is the spiritual significance of this. What is the important instruction to be found in it for us today? Surely the answer is not far to seek. The relation between Elijah and Elisha was that of master and servant, since the anointing of Elijah into the prophetic office is the only case of its kind expressly recorded in Scripture. Are we not required to look upon it as a representative or pattern one? Since Elijah was a figure of Christ, is it not apparent that Elisha is a type of those servants specially called to represent Christ here upon earth? The conclusion drawn previously is manifestly confirmed by all the preliminary details recorded of Elisha ere he entered upon his life's work. Those details may all be summed up under the following heads. His call, the testings to which he was submitted and from which he successfully emerged, the oath he was required to follow, and the special endowment which he received equipping him for his service. 
the closer these details be examined and the more they be prayerfully pondered, the more evidently will it appear to anointed eyes that the experiences through which Elisha passed are those which substantially each genuine servant of Christ is required to encounter. Let us consider them in the order named. First, the call of which he was the recipient. This was his induction into the sacred ministry. It was a clear and definite call by God, the absence of which makes it the height of presumption for anyone to invade the holy office. The summons which Elisha received to quit his temporal avocation and to henceforth devote the whole of his time and energies to God and his people is noted in, so he departed thence and found Elisha the son of Shaphat who was ploughing with twelve yoke of oxen before him and he was with the twelve and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. 1 Kings 19, 19. Observe how that here, as everywhere, God took the initiative. Elisha was not seeking unto him, but the Lord, through Elijah, sought him out. Elisha was not found in his study, but in the field, not with a book in his hand, but at the plough. As one of the Puritans said when commenting thereon, God seeth not as man seeth, neither does he choose men because they are fit, but he fits them because he hath chosen them. Unquote. Sovereignty is stamped plainly upon the divine choice, as appears also in the calling of the sons of Zebedee when mending their nets. Matthew 4.21 Of Levi, while he was sitting at the receipt of custom. Matthew 9.9 And Saul of Tarsus, when persecuting the early Christians. Though Elisha does not appear to have been seeking or expecting a sign from the Lord to engage in his service, yet it is to be noted that he was actively engaged when the call came to him, as was each of the others just alluded to. The ministry of Christ is no place for idlers and drones who wish to spend most of their time driving around in cars or being entertained in the homes of their members and friends. No, it is a vocation which calls for constant self-sacrifice, which entails the burning of the midnight oil, and which demands tireless devotion to the performance of duty. Those then are most likely to be sincere and energetic in the ministry, who are industrious and businesslike in their temporal avocation. Alas, how many who wish to shirk their natural responsibilities and shelve hard work, have entered the ministry to enjoy a life of comparative ease. Elisha means God is Savior, and his father's name, Shaphat, signifies judge. 
Abel Meslaw is literally Meadow of the Dance and was a place in the inheritance of Issachar at the north of the Jordan Valley. Elisha's father was evidently a man of some means, for he had twelve yoke of oxen engaged in ploughing. Yet he did not allow his son to grow up in idleness as is so often the case with the wealthy. It was while he was usefully engaged in the performance of duty, undertaking the strenuous work of ploughing, that he was made the recipient of a divine call unto special service. This was indicated by the approach of the prophet Elijah and his casting his mantle, the insignia of his office, upon him. It was a clear intimation of his own investiture of the prophetic office. This call was accompanied by divine power, the Holy Spirit moving Elisha to accept the same, as may be seen from the promptness and decidedness of his response. Before we look at his response, let us consider the very real and stern test to which Elisha was subjected. The issue was clearly drawn to enter upon the prophetic office, to identify himself with Elijah, meant a drastic change in his manner of life. It meant the throwing up of a lucrative worldly position, the leaving of the farm for the servant and soldier of Jesus Christ must not entangle himself with the affairs of this life. Second Timothy 2, 4 Paul's laboring at tent-making was quite the exception to the rule and a sad reflection upon the parsimoniousness of those to whom he ministered. It meant the breaking away from home and natural ties. Said the Lord Jesus, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Matthew 10:37. If such immoderate affection was an effectual bar to Christian discipleship, Luke 14.26, how much more so from the Christian ministry? The test often comes at this very point. It did so with the present writer, who was called to labor in a part of the Lord's vineyard thousands of miles from his native land, so that he sought not his parents for the space of thirteen years. There was first then the testing of Elisha's affections, but he shrank not from the sacrifice he was now called upon to make, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. Note the alacrity, the absence of any reluctance. And he said, Let me, I pray thee, Kiss my father and my mother, and I will follow thee. Observe his humble spirit. He had already taken the servant's place, and would not even perform a filial duty without first receiving permission from his master. Let any who may be exercised in mind as to whether or no they have received a call to the ministry, search and examine themselves at this point 
to see if such a spirit has been wrought in them. The nature of Elisha's request shows clearly that he was not a man devoid of natural feelings, but an affectionate son, warmly attached to his parents. So far from being an excuse for delaying his obedience to the call, it was a proof of his promptness in accepting it and of his readiness to make a deliberate break from all natural ties. And he, Elijah, said unto him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? 1 Kings 19.20 It was as though the prophet said, Do not act impulsively, but sit down and count the cost, ere you definitely commit yourself. Elijah did not seek to influence or persuade him. It is not to me but to God you are accountable. It is his call which you are to weigh. He knew quite well that if the Holy Spirit was operating, he would complete the work and Elisha would return to him. Oh, that the rank and file of God's people would heed this lesson. How many a young man, never called of God, has been pressed into the ministry by well-meaning friends who had more zeal than knowledge. None may rightly count upon the divine blessing in the service of Christ, unless he has been expressly set apart thereto by the Holy Spirit. Acts 13.2 This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship, 
in which they absurdly exercise themselves, would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.